This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. A long report, uh, a long series of reports, in fact, on the suppression of the Paris Commune in 1871 this time, interspersed with a short article from The Telegraph of Charles Lindbergh's flight. This is uh, the 23rd to the 29th of May, 1871, a report by Archibald Forbes. And just to set the context, the February 1871 elections in France produced a national assembly with a royalist majority, and the Republican Parisians set up a commune to resist the Versailles government. Versailles' troops entered Paris on the 21st of May, and in the bloody week that followed, 20,000 communards, or federals as they were also called, were killed, either in street fighting or in summary executions. Paris, Tuesday, 23rd of May, 5 o'clock. The firing is furious and confusing all around. At the Opera House it is especially strong. I see troops and man after man skulking along the parapet of its roof. They have packs on, so I think they're Versaillists, but I cannot see their breeches, and so cannot be certain. The drapeau rouge still waves from the statue on the summit of the new Opera House. The Federals are massed now at the top of the Rue Lafine, and firing down towards the boulevards. This must mean that the Versaillists are on the boulevards now. On account of the Versailles fire, the Federals cannot well come out into the Rue de Provence, and everywhere they seem between the devil and the deep sea. The people in the Porte Cochere are crying bravo and clapping their hands because they think the Versailles are winning. 20 minutes past five. They were Versailles that I saw on the parapet of the new opera. There is a cheer. The people rush out into the fire and clap their hands. The trickler is waving on the hither end of the opera house. I saw the man stick it up. The red flag still waves at the other end. A ladder is needed to remove it. Ha! You're a good plucky one, if all the rest were cowards. You deserve to give the army a good name. A little grig of a fellow in red breeches. He is one of the old French linesman breed. He scuttles forward to the corner of the Rue Halevi in the Boulevard Houseman, takes up his post behind a tree and fires along the Boulevard Houseman towards the Rue Taigbou. When is a Frenchman not dramatic? He fires with an air, he loads with an air, he fires again with a flourish and is greeted with cheering and clapping of hands. Then he beckons us back dramatically, for he meditates firing up the Rue de Lafayette, but changes his mind and blazes away again up Houseman. Then he turns and waves on his fellows as if he were on the boards of the theatre, the federal bullets cutting the bark and leaves all around him. He is down. The woman I dart out from our corner and carry him in. He's dead with a bullet through the forehead. 25 minutes to six. The scene is intensely dramatic. A Versailles has got a ladder and is mounting the statue of Apollo on the front elevation of the new opera house. He tears down the drapeau rouge just as the Versailles troops stream out of the Chateau d'Antin, across the Boulevard Houseman and down the Rue Mayabir and the continuation of the Chachet d'Antin. The people rushed from their houses with bottles of wine. Money was showered into the streets. The women fell on the necks of the sweaty, dusty men in red breeches and hugged them amid shouts of Vive la Ligne. 
The soldiers fraternized warmly, drank and pressed forward. Their discipline was admirable. They formed in companies behind the next barricade and obeyed the officer at once when he called them from conviviality. Now the wave of Versailles is over us for good, and the red breaches are across the great boulevard and going at the Place Vendôme. Everybody seems wild with joy, and communist cards of citizenship are being torn up wholesale. It is not citoyen now under pain of suspicion. You may say, monsieur, if you like. 10pm. Much has been done now since the hour at which I last dated. The Versailles soldiers, pouring down in one continuous stream by the Chaussée d'Antin, horse, foot, artillery, crossed the great boulevard, taking the insurgents in flank, not without considerable fighting and a good deal of loss, for the Federals fought like wildcats wherever they could get the ghost of a cover. Anxious to ascertain whether there were any prospect of an embassy bag to Versailles, I started up the now quiet boulevard houseman and by tacks and dodges got down into the Rue de Muramusserville, which debouches in the Faubourg opposite the Palace of the Elysee. Shells were bursting very freely in the neighbourhood, but the matter was urgent and I pressed up to the Rue de Faubourg Saint-Honoré and looked round the corner for a second. Had I looked a second longer... I should have been not writing these lines. A shell splinter whizzed past me as I drew back, close enough to blow my beard aside. The street was a pneumatic tube for shell fire. Nothing could have lived in it. I fell back, thinking I might get over to the embassy as the firing died away, and waited in the entry of an ambulance for an hour. There was not a few ambulances about this spot. I saw, for a quarter of an hour, one wounded man carried into one I was near very minute, and for I timed the stretches of my watch. Looking into others, I could see the courtyards littered with mattresses and groaning men. A few, but not many corpses, chiefly of National Guards, lay in the streets, behind the barricades, and in the gutters. As I returned to the Hotel de Chachet d'Antin, I had to cross the line of artillery pouring southward from the Church of the Trinity, and so down the Rue Halevi towards the quarter, where the sound indicated hot fighting was still going on. The artillerymen received a wild ovation from the inhabitants of the Chachet d'Antin. The men gave them money, the women tendered them bottles of wine. All was Godomo. Where, I wonder had the people secreted the tricolour all these days of the commune. It now waved from every window and flapped in the still night air as the shouts of Vive la Ligne gave it a lazy throb. Wednesday. And so evening wore into night, and night became morning. Ah, this morning. Its pale flush of aurora bloom was darkest, most sombre night for the once proud, now stricken and humiliated city. When the sun rose, what saw he? Not a fair fight. On that, within the last year, Sol has looked down more than once. But black clouds flouted his rays, clouds that rose from the Palladium of France. Great God, that men should be so mad as to strive to make universal ruin because their puny course of facetiousness is run. The flames from the palace of the Tuileries kindled by damnable petroleum, insulted the soft light of the morning and cast lurid rays on the grimy, recreant Frenchmen who skulked from their dastardly incendiarism to pot at countrymen from behind a barricade. How the place burned! The flames revelled in the historical palace, whipped up the rich furniture, burst out the plate-glass windows, brought down their fantastic roof. 
It was in the Prince Imperial's wing facing the Tuileries Gardens where the demon of fire first had his dismal sway. By eight o'clock the whole of the wing was nearly burned out. As I reached the end of the Rue Dauphine, the red belches of flames were bursting out from the corner of the Tuileries facing the private gardens and the Rue de Rivoli. The rooms occupied by the King of Prussia and his suite on the visit to France the year of the exhibition. There is a furious jet of flame pouring out of the window where Bismarck used to sit and smoke. Crash! It is an explosion or a fall of flooring that causes this burst of black smoke and red sparks in our faces. God knows what fell devices may be within that burning pile. It were well surely to give it a wide berth. And so... Eastward to the place de Palais Royal, which is still unsafe by reason of shot and shell from the neighbourhood of the Hotel de Ville. And there is the great archway by which troops were wont to enter into the Place de Carousel. Is the fire there yet? Just there, and no more, could the archway be cut. The Louvre, with its artistic riches, might still be spared. But there are none to help. The troops are lounging supine in the rows, intent, and who shall blame weary powder-grimed men on bread and wine? And so the devastator leaps from chimney to chimney, from window to window. He is over the archway now, and I would not give two hours' purchase for all the riches of the Louvre. In the name of modern vandalism, what means that burst of smoke and jet of fire? Alas for art, the Louvre is on fire independently, and so is the Palais Royal and the Hotel de Ville, where the rump of the Commune are cowering amidst their incendiarism, and the Ministry of Finance and many another public and private building besides. I turn from the spectacle sad and sick, to be sickened yet further by another spectacle. The Versailles troops, collected about the foot of the Rue Saint-Honoré, were enjoying the fine game of communist hunting. The Parisians of civil life are caitives to the last drop of their thin, sour, white blood. But yesterday they had cried, Vive la Commune! and submitted to be governed by the said Commune. Today they rubbed their hands with livid, currish joy to have it in their power to denounce a communist and reveal his hiding place. Very eager at this work are the dear creatures of women. They know the rat holes into which the poor devils have got, and they guide to them with a fiendish glee which is a phase of the many-sided sex. Voila, the braves of France return to a triumph after a shameful captivity. They have found him, the miserable. Yes, they drag him out from one of the purlus which houseman had not time to sweep away, and a guard of six of them hem him round as they march him into the Rue Saint-Honoré. A tall, pale, hatless man with something not ignoble in his carriage. His lower lip is trembling and his brow firm, and the eye of him has some pride and defiance in it. They yell, the crowd, shoot him, shoot him! The demon women, most clamorous, of course. An arm goes into the air. There are on it the stripes of a non-commissioned officer and there is a stick in the fist. The stick falls on the head of the pale man in black. Ha! The infection is caught. Men club their rifles and bring them down on that head or clash them into splinters in their lust for murder. He is down. He is up again. He is down again. The thuds of the gun stocks on him sounding just as the sound when a man beats a cushion with a stick. A certain British impulse, stronger than consideration for self, prompts me to run forward, but it is useless. They're firing into the flaccid carcass now, thronging about it like blowflies on a piece of meat. 
his brain spurt on my boot and plash into the gutter, whether the carrion is bodily chucked presently to be trodden on and rolled on by the feet of multitudes and wheels of gun carriages. Womanhood, then, is not quite dead in that band of bedlamites who had clamoured shoot him. Here is one in hysterics, another with wan, scared face, draws out of the press an embryo bedlamite, her offspring, and, let us hope, goes home. But surely all manhood is dead in the soldiery of France to do a deed like this. An officer, one with a bull throat and the eyes of Algiers, stood by and looked on at the sport, sucking a cigar meanwhile. The merry game goes on. Denouncing becomes fashionable, and denouncing is followed in the French natural sequence by braining. For let us get away from the truculent cowards and the bloody gutters and the yelling women and the Algerianite officers. Here is the place Vendôme, held, as I learn on credible authority, by 25 communists and a woman, against all that Versailles found in its heart to do for hours. In the shattered central place, Versailles sentries are stalking about the ruins of the column. They have accumulated, too, some forces in the rat trap. There is one corpse in the gutter, buffeted and besmirched. The corpse, as I learn, of the communist captain of a barricade who held it for half an hour single-handed against the braves of France and then shot himself. The braves have, seemingly, made sure of him by shooting him and the clay, which was once a man, over and over again. And how about the chained wildcats in the Hotel de Ville? Their backs are to the wall, and they are fighting now, not for life, but that they may do as much evil as they can before their hour comes, as come it will before the minute hand of my watch makes many more revolutions. The Versailles do not dare to rush at the barricades around the Hotel de Ville. They are at once afraid of their skins and explosions. But they are mining, circumventing, burrowing, and they will be inside the cordon soon. Meanwhile, the holders of the Hotel de Ville are pouring out death and destruction over Paris in miscellaneous wildness. Now is a shell in the Champs-Élysées, now one in the already shattered Boulevard Houseman, now one somewhere about the Avenue Rennes-Hortense. It is between the devil and the deep sea with the people in the Hotel de Ville. One enemy with weapons in his hand is outside, another fire and fire kindled by themselves is inside. Will they roast? or seek death on a bayonet point. It's hard to breathe in an atmosphere mainly of petroleum smoke. There is a sun, but his heat is dominated by the heat of the conflagrations. His rays are obscured by the lurid blue-black smoke that is rising with a greasy fatness everywhere into the air. Let us out of it, for goodness sake. I take horse and ride off by the river bank towards the Pont du Jour, leaving at my back the still loud rattle of the firing and the smoke belches. I rode on to the Pont de Jour through Dombrovsky's second line of defence by the railway viaduct. Poor Dombrovsky, a good servant to bad masters. I should like to know his fate for certain. Versailles have told me that they saw him taken prisoner yesterday morning, dragged to the Trocadero, and there shot in cold blood in the face of day, looking dauntlessly into the muzzles of the chaspots. Others say he is wounded and a prisoner. As I ride up the broad slope of the avenue between Viroflay and Versailles, I pass a very sorrowful and dejected company. In file after file of six, each march the prisoners of the commune. There are over 2,000 of them altogether patiently, and it seems to me with some consciousness of pride they march, linked closely arm in arm. 
Among them are many women, some of them the fierce barricade Hikat, others mere girls, soft and timid, who are here seemingly because a parent is here too. All are bareheaded and foul with dust, many powder-stained too, and the burning sun beats down on bald foreheads. Not the sun alone beats down, but the flats of sabres wielded by the dashing chasseurs d'Afrique, who are the escort of these unfortunates. Their experiences might have taught them decency to the captives. No sabre blades had descended on their pates in that long, dreary march from Sedan to their German captivity. They were the prisoners of soldiers. But they are prisoners now no longer, as they caper on their wiry Arab stallions, and in their pride of cheap victory they belabour unmercifully the miserables of the commune. In front are three or four hundred prisoners, lashed together with ropes, and among them are not a few men in red breeches, deserters taken red-handed. I marvel they're here at all, not dead in the streets of Paris. As I drive along the green margins of the placid Seine to Saint-Denis, the spectacle which the capital presents is one never to be forgotten. On its white houses the sun still smiles, but up through the sunbeams struggle and surge ghastly swart waves and folds and pillars of dense smoke, not one or two, but I reckon them on my fingers till I lose the count. Ha! There's a sharp crack, and then a dull thud on the air. No artillery, that. Surely some great explosion which must have rocked Paris to its base. There rises a convolvulus-shaped volume of whiter smoke, with a jet-like spurt, such as men describe when Vesuvius bursts into eruption, and then it breaks into fleecy waves and eddies away to the horizon all around as the ripple of a stone thrown into a pool spreads to the margin of the water. The crowds of Germans who sit by the Seine solidly watching are startled into a burst of excitement. The excitement might well be worldwide. Paris the beautiful is Paris the ghastly, Paris the battered, Paris the burning, Paris the blood spattered now. And this is the 19th century, and Europe professes civilization, and France boasts of culture, and Frenchmen are braining one another with the butt ends of muskets, and Paris is burning. We want but a Nero to fiddle. Well, we will pick up the conclusion of Archibald Forbes' report from a few days later uh, in a moment, but just for some lighter relief... Uh, we move forward to May the 23rd, 1927 for a moment. A report from the Daily Telegraph entitled, I'm Lindbergh. Where am I? At 10.22 on Saturday night, Captain Charles Lindbergh, the lone American aviator, arrived at Le Bourget Aerodrome, Paris, after a record-breaking journey of 3,000 miles from New York, which was performed in 33 and a half hours. The Paris airport has never in its history witnessed such scenes as those of Saturday night, when a crowd estimated at between 100,000 and 200,000 swept down the iron barriers and despite the efforts of a force of 500 troops and police swarmed on to the landing ground as soon as Lindbergh's machine was sighted. Shortly after 10 o'clock there was a murmur of long-suppressed excitement as the Ryan monoplane swung into the field of light created over the aerodrome by the searchlights and arc lamps. Twice the pilot made a circuit of the landing ground and then, having carefully chosen his point of descent, came down with a neatness and precision which astonished the observers. 
Hello, boys, I'm here, said Limburg, as he thrust his head out of the cockpit. And then, as though he could not quite believe that he had succeeded, he said, I'm Limburg. Where am I? While Limburg rested in the headquarters of the aerodrome, on a mattress stretched across three chairs, a section of the crowd had stormed the machine, and before this could be stowed in a hangar under a strong guard of troops, it had suffered considerable damage at the hands of souvenir hunters, who had torn off large pieces of the wing covering, chipped off lumps of aluminium, and even broken stays in their eagerness to secure a relic of the record-breaking achievement. It must be realised that, once in his machine, Lindbergh, owing to the features of its construction, could never look out as straight ahead directly, but only by means of a periscopic arrangement. To the left and to the right, his view was uninterrupted through the windows. He carried no lights on board, but all the dials of his instruments were luminous. His steering, this is what surprises the experts, was done entirely by means of one small compass. His route was marked out on maps on a scale of one in a million besides those for the British Isles and France on a very much bigger scale. Limburg wore for his flight breeches, thick woolen stockings and shoes, a moleskin waistcoat over his coat, and over this an overcoat, for he was not entirely enclosed. Behind him in the cockpit of his machine was a chronometer, and on one side a bag of provisions and a tin of water, but there was no parachute and no wireless apparatus. A large knife, a pair of pliers, and the sealed barograph completed the equipment. Well, we uh, continue in Paris as we go back to May 1871 and Archibald Forbes' report on the finale of the Paris Commune situation on the 29th of May. The Mur de Feder, against which the communards were shot, is still a place of pilgrimage for the French left. Travelling to England and riding hard all the way in train and boat, I reached London on the early morning of Thursday, May the 25th, and was back in Paris the following day. All was then virtually over. The hostages in La Raquette had been shot, and the Hotel de Ville had fallen on the afternoon of the day I had left. When I returned, the communists were at their last garp in the Chateau d'Eau, the Butts de Chaumont, and Père Lachaise. On the afternoon of the 28th, just one week of fighting, Marshal McMahon announced, I am absolute master of Paris. On the following morning, I visited Père Lachaise, where the very last shots had been fired. Bivouac fires had been fed with the souvenirs of pious sorrow, and the trappings of woe had been torn down to the used as bedcloths, but there had been no great amount of fighting in the cemetery itself. An infallible token of close and heavy firing are the dents of many bullets, and of those that were or comparatively few in the Père Lachaise. Shells, however, had fallen freely, and the results were occasionally very ghastly. But the ghastliest sight in Père Lachaise was in the southeastern corner, where, close to the boundary wall, there had been a natural hollow. The hollow was now filled up by dead. One could measure the dead by the rood. There they lay, tier above tier, each successive tier powdered over with a coating of chloride of lime, 200 of them patent to the eye, besides those underneath, hidden by the earth, covering layer after layer. Among the dead were many women. There, thrown up in the sunlight, was a well-rounded arm with a ring on one of the fingers. There again was a bust shapely in death, and yonder were faces which to look upon made one shudder, faces distorted out of humanity with ferocity and agony combined. The ghastly effect of the dusty white powder on the dulled eyes, the gnashed teeth and the jagged beards 
cannot be described. How died these men and women? Were they carried hither and laid out in this dead hole of Pierre Lachaise? Not so. The hole had been replenished from them close by. Just yonder was where they were posted up against that section of pock-pitted wall. There was no difficulty in reading the open book and was shot to death as they stood or crouched. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias. www.soundimage.org. <laughs>